Good morning. Um, we live in a uh, an age of oh, there we go. We live in an age of uh, media, so video is a good way to communicate. It's just strange to see yourself on a video. Um, well, this morning we are going to be continuing our sermon series in the Book of Acts. If you would turn to us, uh, turn to Acts twenty. Three. That is where we are going to be beginning our time. And so by way of introduction, um, I don't know, I'll just give you the whole sermon in one sentence to start off with. Um, it's going to be a very um, interesting sermon. Um, if there's, I was telling the guys before we were praying, if there's a single difficult, uh, the most difficult, you know, theological uh, discussion that scripture uh, brings to the surface, it's the one we're having today. So um, for many of you, maybe the first time that I'm kind of forcing you to wrestle with this stuff, maybe you wrestle with it now, or maybe uh, you haven't been to church in 20 years and have, you know, uh, very minimal understanding of things. And all across the board, um, you know, it's our job here to bring you the entirety of scripture. This passage, um, as I was studying it at the latter half of the week, uh, so things surfaced, and um, the Lord has uh, difficult truths, but uh, the, the joy and the freedom that come from them are um, it's life-changing. So, um, yeah, so I'm excited. So when we observe things here, all right, um, our culture has an extreme, uh, what I would say, like a two-dimensional uh, approach to understanding our world, when we see things like nature and our very scientific uh, Western society, we tend to look at things and begin to kind of, you know, try to see through them, right? Like if you see a tree, you could say, well, this is a certain species, a certain class of tree and certain type of tree and only grows in this area of the country and this, these temperatures and et cetera and so forth, and you kind of can move on. And we're kind of given that kind of uh, training in school, you know, right, when we're raised up here in our nation, and um, we, we have the tendency now to lose, um, and I would even argue we're taught to not see this, um, but it's there. We tend to lose the inherent beauty in things. Uh, we want to see straight through them. Um, from the perspective of Scripture, um, there's a whole different narrative out there that is happening. Uh, when we see Mountains. It is not a mere product of whatever how many years of some kind of geographical event that threw up the Rocky Mountains. Um, there's a God who fashioned those mountains himself, merely spoke them into existence, caused the earth to bring them forth, and he's at work kind of behind the scenes. And that's the scriptural understanding. We don't see, we're not told those things from our culture, but as Christians we know even if we have a, um, a very helpful understanding of the workings of this world, we know that there is a, another story out there that God is at work doing something amongst us even today. So literature kind of gives us the chance to do this. Um, my wife just read through Gone with the Wind, um, and then we actually watched a movie together. Um, yes, I watched Gone with the Wind. Um, never, I grew up in Atlanta, you're inundated with Gone with the Wind and all, you know, so um, I knew a lot about it, but never actually seen the movie, um, but we watched it, it took us like a month because, 
you know, we have little kids and a four-hour movie, it takes a long time. But in Gone with the Wind, you know, we sat together, we watched it. Uh, Rhett and Scarlett were just terrible, awful people. I mean, awful human beings. And basically, they essentially ruined their lives and those around them. Uh, they, their greatest love in life was clearly themselves. They had no view beyond themselves. And they brought down everybody around them. And Margaret Mitchell, who wrote the book, she had a message for her audience, right? When she's writing the story, she's not just giving us random stories. She has a specific thing she's trying to show us and to teach us. You, you know, if you've studied literature in college, you know, or any means, you, we call that the, the uh, divine perspective, right? She has uh, the divine perspective on this story kind of giving us a message. If we just read the stories and say, oh, that's an interesting story, without trying to break it down to see what is the message of this book, then we're missing the pur purpose as to why it was written. She's trying to tell us if you have only yourself in mind and pursue only your self-interest, that you will not just bring yourself down, but those people around you will be dramatically affected. And so that was the message of that book, if I could sum it up. And we see, uh, just you know, by way of example, we see in Scripture um, the authors are writing from a perspective of God's redemptive story in mankind. He has an agenda and he has a goal. Each writer and all the different genres and time periods and books that they wrote in the Scriptures had their own agenda to communicate something to us about God, something to us um, particularly about his nature, his character, his work, uh, his, his purposes for mankind and, and for us in life. In Acts 16, a few weeks back when Paul was in jail in Philippi, we saw that when God was working there, he um, not only had Paul in mind, but his story involved all the people there, all the people in that jail. And so we took a minute to analyze, you know, uh, God's work isn't just us, but it also involves those around us. He uses us and the lives of other people in ways we don't even quite understand. And that's kind of one of the overarching uh, narratives of Scripture that he is at work, not just some people, individual people, but nations and, and people groups at large to accomplish his one specific purpose in Scripture. And today we see that happening, but in a very um, uh, unique way, in a very interesting manner. And it's a bit more confusing. Uh, it's actually pretty confusing. He chooses in this passage that we're going to look at to use people and their sinful agenda for his good purposes. So people, as we're going to see, they're out to murder Paul. And Jesus uses their sin to bring about his good agenda. Now, I hope that um, brings questions in your mind. So like, that's... That's a little interesting. There's a lot of uh, questions that should be implied by that. Luke is really trying to give us a much bigger story here than just Paul uh, getting on trial and such. Um, he, he, like Margaret Mitchell did, he has a divine role here in Acts uh, as the author. He has a perspective that he's trying to communicate to us. And so um, all the questions that spurs about God's sovereignty over good and over evil is presented in this, in his use of people's murderous intent for his good purposes. And so before we get into those questions, let's look at this text, look at this story, and dig into it. So um, to bring us up here, we didn't have a chance to 
hit this the very end of chapter 22 last week. If you remember, Paul was speaking, you know, to the, the, the masses of the Jewish people in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, he knew the things that were kind of the hot button issues to kind of set them off, but he knew that if they didn't hear it, then their acceptance of Jesus would be somewhat illegitimate. They needed the fullness of the gospel. So he said, um, God in his salvation is not just for Israel any longer, but he has in mind the Gentiles too. He's expanding his scope to not just Israel, but also now to the nations, and now they're included in the blessings of God. And they reacted very strongly, and Paul had to be, um, he was brought out of there. The Roman tribunes took him in verse 22, um, in chapter 22. It says, up unto this word, they listened to him, they raised their voices. These are the crowd. They said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So 22 verse 5 says, But then when they stretched him out for whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? They just assumed he was not a Roman citizen. And this involves a fair trial that was guaranteed for Roman citizens. When a centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. He needs to be on trial, not just flogged. So the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I, brought, I bought my citizenship for a large sum, Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Paul's father was a Roman citizen, therefore he inherited um, his citizenship through his father. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid because he realized Paul was a Roman citizen. He could get in trouble for flogging or even about to flog a Roman citizen. But the next day, the tribune, he realized, you know, this is, this is a religious kind of issue here with Paul. I don't really understand this. And so he says in verse 30, On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul, why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before him. The council involved, involved two sects of, of, of groups in Israel. It was the Pharisees and it was the Sadducees. Now we see Paul, with great wisdom, pulling out the card that would kind of rescue him from getting beat up right there. He was like, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't hurt me. They're like, all right, you're right. And so Paul then is brought before the Jewish council because these guys want to know what is really going on. He's causing a mere riot in Jerusalem almost. So what is really going on? Verse 23, verse 1, we see this. Paul standing before this council, he says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now again, with great courage, Paul, as a Christian, knowing that the people standing before him were not Christians, but were against Christianity, um, he said, hey guys, I have a clear conscience here. He's kind of implying, I know you don't agree with me, so your conscience should not be clear. But he's also doing something. He's appealing to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the more conservative group of the bunch. Uh, they believed in the literal words of Scripture and, and the resurrection from the dead and the angelic beings. And Paul was himself a former Pharisee before his conversion. And he knew that their lives were spent trying to have a clear conscience to keep every uh, letter and every, every single thing in this book. They spent their entire lives structured around it in order to keep all of it. And so Paul is kind of appealing before them saying, hey guys, I actually have a clear conscience here. 
And so, he, yes, he's kind of backhandedly saying, uh, if I do, you probably shouldn't. But he's also backhandedly reaching out to them, saying, guys, I actually do have a clear conscience with my way of life in Jesus. And this is what happens. A high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now, when Jesus was being struck when he was on trial, he kind of turned the other cheek and lay silent. Paul responded to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. It's like, whoa. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Leviticus laid out that anybody accused of a crime would be worthy of a fair trial without any kind of physical harm. And here Paul's getting smacked just for saying something. And the high priest was kind of the leader of Israel in that regard. He was the religious authority. And it was him who commanded Paul to be struck. And Paul said, you're claiming to be this guy. And you just struck me. What's going on? And the, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now the high priest, the Romans put him in charge, not the Jews, and so I think Paul was kind of sarcastically saying, oh, I didn't know you were the high priest, because you're not really the high priest. And so it's kind of a sarcastic way of saying, I don't really take you seriously. Verse 6, when Paul perceived that one, that one part were the Sadducees, the other the Pharisees, these two groups that did not get along, Paul knew how to exploit everything. He was in trouble. I mean, he was aware of this. He knew that it was not going to go well for him if he sat here under trial by these two groups. Both groups did not like him. He knew that his life was probably at stake. And so with great wisdom, knowing the differences that divided these two groups of religious people, he said, you know what? I'm going to cause an uproar here and kind of get the attention off of myself and just um, confuse people here and hopefully prolong my life. And he says, brothers, I am a Pharisee a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. The Sadducees did not believe that the dead were ever to be raised. The Pharisees did, and he knew that was one of their big contention points. And so what happened? When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees, the old Bible joke says, they didn't believe in a literal scripture because they were sad, you see. Ha ha. That's what an education gets you. Verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Luke kind of explains that for us. Verse 9. Then a great clamor arose. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees' part, party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel did speak to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among the barracks by force and bring him into the barracks. Paul's plan succeeded. Things went crazy. Things went nuts. His trial kind of went on cease, and they just had to pull him out of there because they started fighting and, and chaos ensued, and Paul was probably thinking, whew, somehow I got out of that alive. Crazy. But with great wisdom and great wit, he worms himself out of that one. All right? And we think it's his own wit, right? We think it's his own intelligence and his own ability to, to pull that apart. But then the following night, that's what happened. The Lord stood by him. So Jesus appears next to Paul. Like, this is not like an apparition. Essentially, he's speaking of a, a physical manifestation of Jesus. Not a dream, nothing like that. It looks like he actually came and sat next to Paul and said, Paul, take courage. 
For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So if Paul needed encouragement, you think of the, the, the events of the past week for him, the past few days were rather dramatic, having caused a riot inside of one of the biggest cities in that region of the country, himself being the center uh, cause of that riot, uh, going on trial before you know, the uh, Roman Tribune about to be flawed, somehow got out of that one, going before these two groups of the, of the religious Jewish people about to be on trial before then, somehow warned his way out of that one. And he's probably thinking, man, like, eventually I can't just keep doing this. Like, I'm in trouble, right? This isn't going to go well for me. Jesus shows up, says, it's okay. I have a plan. I'm bringing you to Rome. You've been testifying about the gospel here in Jerusalem. Well, I'm going to get you in Rome to do the same thing. And he says, take courage. Now, if Paul needed to hear a word, it was right then. It was right there. But he was just given by Jesus the perspective that we were talking about before. Jesus says, you know, I helped you get out, worm your way out of those things. It wasn't just you. Like, I, I helped you do that I because I have a plan to get you to Rome. So right now, between here, you're in Jerusalem, and between Rome, things look very hostile here, but take courage. Whatever happens to you, I'm going to get you alive in the city of Rome. Paul was not told how he's getting to Rome. He didn't know the plan God, uh, Jesus had in mind for him, that God had ordained for him. He just knew, I'm going to Rome. I'm going to survive all these events in Jerusalem. This is really exciting. And then what happens the very next day? When it was daytime, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There was more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, like a trial part two. And then we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when things seem to be up and up for Paul, he now has a death threat of 40 people against him. If you think you've had enemies in your life, I don't think any of you have had 40 people conspiring as a way to wipe you off this planet. Paul found himself in an even more tight spot. So take courage, Jesus said, because tomorrow, you're, you know, people are going to be trying to kill you. Um, but take courage, you're, you're getting to Rome. I, I would be a little confused if I was Paul, thinking like, wow, okay, um, I, I, I hope that he was, Jesus was telling me that, I mean, he's human. If I was Paul, my thought would be, man, I hope Jesus was right, because this, this looks really bad. Um, 40 people against one. I'm in jail right now. I don't know what to do here. Um, now the son of Paul's sisters, verse 16, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, his nephew. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So Paul became aware of the plot by his nephew. Now we know his nephew, we don't know if he's a Christian or just a uh, still um, wrapped up in Judaism, does not know Jesus yet. Um, that was, he was a relative of Paul. Maybe he was a, sympath a sympathizer who learned of the plot and said, I ought to help my uncle here. Or maybe he was a Christian. It was kind of like a spy that was wrapped up in the group and was trying to understand what lays in Paul's future. We don't really know, but all we know that he loved his uncle and wanted to go help his uncle when he learned what was going on. So Paul told one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune. He has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? 
And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow. As though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush. Who have bound themselves by oath neither to eat or drink till they have killed him. And now they are waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, don't tell anybody if you have told me about these things. And so now we see God is at work. Remember, the goal is Rome. And so here's what happens. This is pretty incredible. Verse 23. Then the tribune called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen, 470 soldiers. All right? And go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Jerusalem's here. If you go, like, north, um, west, uh, Caesarea is, like, one of the coast, one of the coastal cities in uh, Israel. is a Roman city, Caesarea, Caesar, you know, it's a Roman city. And so they said, ship into the Roman city. He'll be safe there. Do it at the third hour of the night, 9 o'clock. So get 470 men at 9, 9 p.m. and start making your way for Caesarea. This was, I don't know, like 60 or 70 miles outside of Jerusalem. So in those days, that was quite a hike. And they're leaving in the middle of the night. And he wrote a letter um, to, to the governor describing the situation. Um, he says, uh, Claudius Lysias, who is excellently the governor, Felix. And he, he kind of breaks down all of what's going on with Paul. And so Paul suddenly finds himself in the Roman escort of almost 500 soldiers to get safely brought to a Roman city. As, as we see um, in Caesarea, some more events happen, but that's the beginning of God's plan to bring Paul from there to Rome. Now, we walk through those events and those stories, all right, and I want to bring up back to the beginning of our sermon, was that these people had wicked intentions to kill Paul, but we just saw in the grand scheme of things, as we look in through the remainder of the four chapters left in the book of Acts, it was crucial Paul made his way to Caesarea. There he was under Felix, and he got to even have Bible studies with Felix. Felix was the governor of the region. He had very close ties with the Romans. He was a very powerful figure in that day. Paul was able to go and essentially start having Bible studies with Felix, and Felix was to learn about Christianity from Paul. He seemed to get kind of shook up by it at one point, like it was really kind of getting to his heart, you know. And that's where eventually Paul is be, to be set sailed for Rome, as we're going to see in the oncoming chapter. So God used these wicked people's in, uh, intentions to murder Paul for his good purposes of Paul going to the capital of the very empire itself to go and to share and preach the good news of Jesus. We don't know this for a fact, but it looks like even Paul probably more than likely had a chance to stand before the emperor himself to share the good news of Jesus. That's a pretty amazing thing for the world empire of the day, for a single man like Paul to be brought through all those events to lead to those things. God wanted that to happen, and he used wicked people for those means. So my, my idea here is that God uses evil for good. Now, you remember at the beginning we were talking about how reality is much more um, uh, divine, than just merely under, understanding how to break down like a tree of its, you know, science and its classification. Like, no, God had allowed that tree to be, to be, to, to grow and to be born, right, and to be what it is. Today, there's, there's a divine perspective of all things. And so as we're looking at this story, the angle I'm trying to point you to see and to, uh, to put yourself in is that God and all of his goodness and his righteousness and his good purposes and plan decides to use 
people who wanted to murder Paul to bring that about. How, what is God's relationship and his sovereignty to evil? Now that's one of the questions, if not the big question that comes out of this passage, right? How can God use evil for good? How can he actually use evil for good? In this text, 40 people who are obviously wicked, who are all willing to commit murder, and God used them to bring them, him safely to Caesarea. Now the implications of this we need to work through is this. The relationship between God's sovereignty and people's, people's intentions, evil intentions, which also spurns more questions. Is God ordained sin? Like, it's one of the implications from people who did this and Paul used it, or God used it to bring Paul to where he was going. Well, did God plan for these people to have their murderous intent? How does that work? If that is the case, were they still guilty of sin? Are we still guilty of sin if we commit it? If it's possible that God, God ordains and uses sin to bring about his good purposes. And these are big questions that throughout the ages people have asked, right? It's probably the most difficult theological topic, one of the most difficult that we have to wrestle with. How could a good God oversee evil and use it for good? How does that work? How does, where does the responsibility of, of, of God over evil lie? And using people's evil actions for his good purposes, is he himself not responsible? That's the question I ask, and I think probably all of us will ask at least once in our lifetime, right? Is a sovereign God ultimately going to be responsible for evil things in this world? I probably have your attention with questions like that, right? These are gigantic questions, but where do we start? So we have to start here. Let's pull ourselves out of this story for a minute, okay? Let's remove... Uh, something that culture has uh, kind of built up inside of us, and that is we quickly go to judge and make uh, um, judgments with our emotions before we allow the text to speak for itself. And this is what I mean. We naturally want to define life in our own terms. We've been trained to think that the meaning behind things ultimately lies in our opinion, in our views and understanding. In short, if something does not make sense, then something is wrong. Okay, this is how that plays out. Our culture has placed us as the final judge of what is good and evil. And this will be very true if we truly believe that you and I are the most intelligent species in existence and that the meaning of life ends with you and I. That's what our culture is trying to communicate and we know as Christians, of course that's not the case. Right, we're not the final judge of what is right or wrong. That's not the biblical worldview. God has given us the ability to reason but without divine aid, our reason is not in and of itself sufficient to understanding the complexities of life. I just challenge the entire European Enlightenment philosophers of the 18th century for that statement. I get it. It's a big statement to make. Reason is simply not enough as human beings before a sovereign God to say we can wrestle with these things. I mean, it, it plays out like this, you know. Um, we are subservient to God. We were created in his image. God gave us a job to go and to subdue this world and work and create for his glory. We are image bearers of him. Our lives are not lives that end with itself, but rather look, our, uh, our lives look toward the very one who created us, just as a mirror reflects our image. That's the biblical Narrative. So when we wrestle with hard questions like how does God oversee evil in this world? What is his relationship to evil? We see him using these wicked, uh, uh, sinful people in the story to bring about his purposes. We have to do a few things, understand a few things. Number one, 
understand that you and I are not the judges of this world. We are not the judges of this world. Things like uh, rape, murder, cancer, these awful things, if you and I, uh, I'm speaking for myself, if we had the ability to just stop those things, well, surely we would, right? Like, if it's up to us, we would say, those things can just be over, like, no more, okay? But then when we see things happen, we talk about a sovereign God, the question comes, well, why in the world is God allowing these things to happen? Now, I don't have any secrets here for the past 2,000 years that somebody has not found out, okay? Um, Read St. Augustine, uh, Augustine, all this stuff that he wrote, you know, two millennia ago almost. He wrestled with these questions, too. I haven't found out an answer that nobody else has ever wrestled with. I don't have anything for you other than this, okay? I'm going to reduce it very easily for you right now and break this down. It's called the Christian faith for a reason. This is where faith comes into play. I'll tell you the story. This is um, Craig Bloomberg. He's a Denver, professor, uh, Denver seminary professor over there. He gives an illustration I think is very helpful. He says, when you're wrestling with this question, think about this. I've told many of you this, especially if you're in PLI, you've heard me use this example before, um, but it's very helpful, I think. He said, imagine if you're a bear, you're caught in a bear trap, all right, and you see a hunter with hunter arms and rifle walk in front of you, and uh, you sense danger. I'm in trouble, I'm a bear trap hunter, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a goner. The hunter sees the bear, has compassion. He walks over, he wants to help the bear. So he goes down, pushes the trap in, and the bear's thinking, he's just torturing me. What is he doing? This hurts. And then the trap opens. The hunter walks away. The bear's free. The whole idea of that story is if the hunter wanted to communicate to the bear at any point his intentions, the bear would have been like, Ugh. you know, there's no ability for communication to actually happen in the meaningful way. Okay? And Craig Bloomberg uses that example to say when we're wrestling with this question, we have to realize that there is a supernatural and divine God who spoke things into existence, who has a grand and majestic, glorious plan, and we are just a part of his creation, even if he were to stoop down right now and stand in front of us and start explaining the details of why evil exists and why he uses evil intentions for his good purposes, we would be sitting there just going, I, I, don't, I don't understand what you're saying to me right now. You'd be like that bear trying to communicate with the hunter. Like, I, I don't ultimately know what you're saying. And we see this actually happened, I'll, I'll skip ahead for a minute here with, uh, I won't skip ahead. Yeah, I will. Job, okay, Job was actually communicated to. I'll briefly touch on this. And you know what God's communication to Job was when we get to a story in a minute? It was simply, are you me? You're just a human being here. You weren't with me when I created the world. And that's ultimately what we are left to deal with. Guys, I don't feel a pressure or a need to understand everything. This may seem contrary to reason in our scientific age, right? As helpful as, as, as reason is and those things are, but I don't feel a pressure to understand all of these dynamics. It is difficult to look at and accept. What, look at this, a slew of scripture here that presents these things. It is hard. We know that God is more powerful than Satan. We know that he can control the storms and the wind, that he can prevent something like a rape or cancer happening, but sometimes he does and sometimes he does not, Right? And so let's look at the second thing that we need to understand. I'm just kind of leaving that hanging because there's a resolution to those things. It's, it's called faith, and we're going to build on that here in a moment. As we're looking at those events, we have to then ask the question, well, who is the guilty party? If God is allowing things to happen, well, who's the guilty party? 
Were these people in Acts chapter 23 guilty for their sinful intentions? Jesus said, if you hate somebody in your heart, then you already committed murder. And they never actually murdered Paul, but surely they were guilty of essentially murdering in, the, in that sense, right? But some people we see actually go through with their wicked intentions. What is the, who's a guilty party? We need to also understand, point number two, we make free decisions with our will. We are held responsible over our actions. We are called to righteous and holy living. Only later, we look back and realize God ordained all of it and allowed it all to happen and actually destined it to happen. Those, both of those truths are, are there. This is Peter says this very explicitly in one of the most fascinating verses in Scripture, I think. Probably not. People would not agree. Whatever. First, first Peter 2.8 says this. Talking of people who did not believe, this is how he breaks it down for us. People who don't believe, who are not Christians, who are um, stumbling over the word of God. He says, they stumble because they disobey the word. First Peter 2.8. They're guilty. They disobeyed. They're sinful. They've chosen to disobey. With their will, they've decided to disobey, and therefore they are the guilty party. And then he finishes the sentence, as they were destined to do. Did you catch that? He puts out both truths. It says there's a sovereign God who destined these things to happen, but they're still guilty because they chose it to happen, right? Those things are equally true. From the divine perspective, they were destined to do that, yet God is not guilty of evil, nor never will or can be. These people, as revealed in verse 9, we see that they were never to believe or never will believe, apparently, in Peter's language. James is very clear that we can never cast blame on God, James 1, 13 through 14 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed by his own desire. We're the guilty party. We're the ones that are guilty. We're the ones that chose to sin. These people in the story chose to do what they did. We're the guilty ones. 1 John 1, 5 said, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, his work is perfect. All of his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. We can go all day long reading verses like that. God is holy and never to be blamed for any evil. But Genesis 50 uh, verse 20 and the story of Joseph who was greatly sinned against by many people. The story of Joseph when he was, his brothers wanted to kill him, but they said they threw him in a pit and he was in jail for about 15 years, wrongfully accused for numerous things, all to become the prime minister of Egypt because of those events. One day to face his brothers, he went to him and said, Joseph, we, we treated you terribly. I'm so sorry, right? And what did Joseph say? It's fine. You meant it for evil against me. Like you're guilty of evil, guys. You know what God meant it for? He meant it for good. That's kind of the thesis of the whole book of Genesis right there. I don't know how that works. You don't know how that works. Okay? But I hope there's a tinge of comfort in your heart right now of saying, you know, I don't have to understand that. But if God is so sovereign, and I, th I think Moses, when he wrote the book of Genesis, was trying to communicate that when sin entered the world, God had an agenda to agenda to reverse sin and he is so sovereign that in his plan to reverse sin he is actually going to use people's sin to bring about his good now that is an incredible definition of God's sovereignty is it not 
that a good and sovereign God can stoop down and with the most wicked person say, I'm going to use your evil wickedness to bring about my good. You cannot thwart my goodness with your evil. I'm going to bring it back and use it for good. Joseph understood that. So for us, this is where the rubber kind of starts meeting the road. What do we do with these things? What do we do with these things? We say, I don't understand. Are you willing to say this? I don't understand, but I still trust in you. I don't get it, God, but I still trust you. In the same breath, are you willing to say the prayer, if you will it, Lord? There are vast complexities with the sovereignty of God. We know that the Bible is clear. Romans 8, 28 says, All things work together for the good of those who know him. But the dis- and his sovereignty over all these things, does it communicate that life will be smooth and easy because he is pursuing a good purpose for us? We have the definition in our culture of good as being, being smooth and leisure-filled and easy, right? God has a very different um, understanding of what good is. Good is pointing all things to himself and his glory, and he's destined eventually everything to point to himself and to his glory. That is the redemption, the reversal of sin to happen. And it's come about by the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and being the true human. He pointed now all of us back to the true human to say, you are reconciled to me by my son Jesus. And to be good now is to shine our lights on Christ. That is, what it, that is true goodness in this world. That is God's good plan. But as that happens, it may not be the smoothest life possible. Paul did not have a very smooth life, but are we willing to say, if you will it, Lord, even without understanding of why life gets so difficult, saying, I don't get this, but God, you are good. I embrace this. I want to see you glorified. If you've chosen this to occur, help me to still believe in your goodness and to accept this. And this comes with a product, the spiritual fruit of courage, We are then to courageously follow after Jesus and the call to a righteous and holy life, making disciples of all nations and allowing him to dictate the result of our efforts and accept anything that comes our way as from the Lord, trusting in his ultimate goodness to even bring about an eventual reversal to good from the worst of circumstances. Job does this and it's very fascinating. When when God allowed Satan to come before him, and Satan said, hey, I want to uh, essentially wipe out Job and prove to you that he doesn't really trust in you, doesn't really have faith in you. God lets this happen, okay? Satan was guilty for removing Job's wealth, his uh, many deaths of his family members. Um, his very health was breaking down. Job's life was completely crumbling apart. And Job, who does he, who does he bring as ultimately, ultimately responsible for this? Is it Satan Satan did it. You look in Job chapter 1 and 2, Satan was the ones doing this. But what does Job say? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He knew that God had a good plan. Somehow, even in the midst of his life being a wreck. We know that he did not have a full understanding of this, nor do we call to have a full understanding of this. That's why it's called faith. It's to say, God, I don't get your sovereignty, but blessed are you because you are ultimately giving and taking away from us. And Satan is to blame. He's actively at work. But we know that God is allowing these things to happen for his good purposes. And we say, all to you be the glory. I don't understand. Um, I'll be very 
transparent for a minute here as we close in the back end of our sermon. When I was 21 years old, I was a newlywed living in a basement apartment right outside of Philadelphia and with, with Alex, and I was reading chapter 16 in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. The title of the chapter is God's Providence. Uh, when people come to me and they wrestle with this question, I just give them this book and I say, go read this chapter. It's filled with dozens and dozens of scriptural examples that shows that God is indeed sovereign over all things, but there's vast complexities that we don't quite understand that we have to wrestle with. It put me in a dark spot when I read that for the first time. The scriptural evidence is too high to ignore that there is a truly sovereign God over evil, that he uses evil people for his purposes, and it spun me in the dark place. Probably one of the most spiritual dark times I've ever had. But I gotta say, on the back end of it, the freedom I found, to say, I don't have to understand this. I'm not called to understand this. I'm called to believe that God is good and that through Jesus there is hope and reconciliation awaiting for this world and that one day in Revelation all these evil, wicked things will be reversed and, and completely removed from this world. Those things are true. I don't get how things are happening now. I don't quite understand it all, but the freedom to let go of that. And it's like, to say, God, you can be God. I just want to be used by you. Just let me be used in your good and glorious plan. I just want to see you glorified. Use me, Jesus. I don't get your works. Sometimes I don't understand them, but please use me. It was most free, one of the most freeing things in my life when I accepted it. And so Acts 23, right, the spiritual fruit, as we said, was courage. What did Jesus say to Paul? When he said, hey, I'm in, I'm in charge here, he said, take courage, Paul. I have a plan. Take courage. Doesn't mean this will be easy, but take courage. I have a plan. Um, one of the most amazing examples of this, I love this story. In John chapter 19, Jesus standing before Pilate. He's already been arrested at this point. He'd been flogged. Um, he was a bloodied mess. I mean, when I say bloodied mess, I mean like his body would have been like broken up and falling apart, like couldn't even barely stand up. He had a crown of thorns on, a little flimsy reed in his hand and a purple robe over his shoulders, all in mockery of him claiming to be king. I mean, this guy could probably barely take breath without his just body hurting him. He's standing before Pilate and Pilate looks him in the eye and says, Jesus, wake up. You're not saying anything to me right now. I have authority to release you or to crucify you. Do you know that? And this is what he says. It's amazing. Jesus responds in John uh, 19, verse 11, saying, the only authority you have is the authority that my Father has given you. And this is what he's indirectly saying. Pilate, I'm running the show right now. And his bloodied, weak state, clearly the Romans have the upper hand, and Jesus says, nope. We, we're, I'm running the show, Pilate. Just step aside, do your thing, but I'm really running the show. The greatest sin in history, the murdering of the Son of God. And Jesus says, God is running the show here. They were guilty for what they did, but God's running the show here. So by way of application as we um, wrap up here, be free of trying to understand the complexities of God's sovereignty and by faith live in light of it. God is a good God. The call of the Christian life is the most joyful life possible. It gives you great courage to face the, the, the bad times and the, the fullness of joy to face the blessing and the good times. The sooner you release your mind from trying to wrestle with these hard theological truths and ultimately that we cannot fully understand, the more free you are to have a joyful, content, and satisfied life beyond all understanding. 
Number two, trust that all things really are for the good, which is ultimately for the glory of God. Even when things appear so terrible in your life and in this world, Romans 8, 28 still stands that for his people, good is happening and will happen. Revelation 21 and 22 shows that his plan ultimately is a good plan to remove all these things from this world. We can take heart to face these things and to trust that God really is a good God, even when we cannot understand it. And the last thing is this, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Paul says this, Don't be anxious about anything in life, but that everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding would guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you think Paul sitting after hearing the news that 40 people wanted to murder him, he knew what he was talking about when he said this? He had a promise from God to be surviving to Rome, but people want to kill him. He says, you know, I had a peace, I had understanding in my heart that persevered me through the toughest of times to know there's a good God who loves me, has a good plan in mind. So, in wrapping up, I leave you with a quote from Gandalf. All right? I'm a big Tolkien fan. Um, this is what he says. One of my favorite quotes. He says this. Bilbo... He, um, at the end of the book, he, he, you know, there were some prophecies that were quoted. This is the Hobbit I'm talking about. That um, uh, the events that happened in Bilbo's life were foretold. And he says, like, huh, pretty crazy that it kind of appeared to actually come true. And this is what Gandalf's response was. It's pretty cool. He says, of course, said Gandalf. And why should they not prove true? Sure, you don't disbelieve the prophecies just because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you? That all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck? Just for your sole benefit? You are a very, very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in the wide world after all. Thank goodness, said Bilbo, laughing. I read that to say, we are just little people in this wide world in God's majestic sovereign plan. Bilbo didn't quite understand, right? that all these things were ordained. Tolkien was a Christian writing from the biblical perspective. God had ordained all these things to happen. And so they happened. And how did he respond with laughter? He's like, okay, great. I don't, I don't, I don't get this. May we with joy embrace the complexities of our sovereign God by faith and delight in his sovereignty over good and evil and in his righteous purposes while we, like Paul, take courage and walk boldly, sharing the good news of Jesus to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to um, uh, be free of, of, of trying to uh, reason our way and fit you into a box of understanding. Would you aid us, Lord, to um, just by faith to walk in the most uh, blessed of times and the most difficult of times, knowing that you will punish the wicked and evildoer for their deeds. You will bring justice to them, Jesus. You will punish them, and we, th we thank you for your justice, and we thank you that you can even uh, in your majestic sovereignty, use those evil things for your good. Thank you, Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.